Hey, what's going on, everybody? You're listening to another episode of the Supermercado Bros Video Game Music Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Great to have you guys back. This is the podcast where we share and discuss the very best in video game music. My name is Carl Brueggemann. And I'm his brother, Will Brueggemann. To kick off a new season, we're taking another sort of unique approach to examining music here on the show today. The topic of this week's episode will be nostalgia. And in fashion with a lot of our season premieres, this is going to be a little bit more like an editorial style where we're, we're sort yeah. of making a point with all of our picks here today. And we're trying to examine maybe a broader discussion or kind of cultural examination of this music outside of maybe the the typical conventions that we apply here on this show. Well, really, it's a it's a different lens to view and listen to music. A lot of music to, on today's episode that we've already played before and discussed before. But today we're going to have a little bit of a different lens. Uh, we do have to give credit to actually our good buddy Carlos. He gave us the idea to do this episode, and we thought it was just a really great idea. Something we've thought about for a, for a number of years. The importance of nostalgia on not just music but video game music. There's a lot to be discussed today. I can't wait to get into it. Uh, The way that we divided our playlist today, we divided it into five different categories when it comes to talking about nostalgia related to video game music. So I'm really excited to get into it. Before we do that, we do have to mention what you're hearing right now. This is Flower Garden from Yoshi's Island, composed by Koji Kondo. I couldn't think of a better track to play in an episode called Nostalgia. This is just a flawless track. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's so nostalgic to me uh, because this is a game that I grew up playing and Carl I have so many fond memories of playing this game with you yeah likewise even as a younger kid watching you play it the other Mm -hmm. thing about Yoshi's Island uh, nostalgia just sort of surrounded that project because I think even though now that game in and of itself is something that we might look back fondly uh, that was really one of the first examples of a Nintendo game that I feel like was actively doing that to itself and Koji Kondo especially like if you think about the end credits of that game how he sort of harkens back to the level complete theme from the original Super Mario Brothers Mm -hmm. there's that sense that within the series it's kind of looking back nostalgically and it's about Mario as a baby so there is this inherent (laughs) kind of you know looking back nature what i'm excited about today's episode is to examine the importance that really nostalgia plays in the entire video game industry and specifically the preservation of retro games and retro video game music it's such a huge part of the kind of video game subculture and it's really transcended to become a part of our popular culture and i will yeah i would definitely argue that without nostalgia and the power that that has to to all of us i do not think that this art form would be preserved as much to the, to the level that it is today because it's a powerful thing you know things like OC Remix you know entire websites and, and businesses and industries part of the reason those are still flourishing is because people have a, a really powerful emotional connection to music that that represents a really good time in their life and for us being little kids and having fun playing games that represents an innocent time where we had no worries and we always want to either if, even if it's subconscious we want to go back to that time right. and so I'm excited to explore this let's talk about the first area 
of nostalgia. And Will, do you think we should just ex- kind of talk about it as we go? So we'll just discuss the first facet and then and then move on to the second at that time. Yeah, completely. I, honestly, uh, one thing I want to make sure to do is, I guess, give sort of a... Um uh, our working definition of nostalgia okay. on the podcast today, because I think we're maybe assuming that, that it's a term that everybody's familiar with. Well, why don't you go for um, it, Will? But yeah, I, to me, and I think the way that we're examining nostalgia here, it is a bittersweet, melancholy feeling that you get when remembering good times in the past. Yeah. It's, it's essentially like something that is equal parts happy and sad. It's happy because you're remembering something nice, but it's sad but that time because is gone. It's, yeah. yeah, it's inaccessible to you. And um, lately, I think in our popular culture, there've been so many examinations of nostalgia and people claiming, uh, that, you know, certain movies and TV shows and pieces of our culture only exist for the purposes of nostalgia to right. fulfill like our, our childhood, uh, desires. I would, I One would of the reasons argue... we wanted to do this episode was to kind of shine a light on the merit of some things that are often uh, just labeled as only being uh, well, right. exciting or interesting because well, absolutely. of absolutely. And I would argue that there's definitely more positive. You said bittersweet, but there's a lot more positive feelings to nostalgia than negative because otherwise we wouldn't enjoy listening to old school video game music. Sure. So I think although there is a combination, there's some, there's a yearning and a pull to want to remember those times. And I think that's, that's the positive side of nostalgia. So the first facet that we want to explore, and we have, I think, five tracks that will convey this is... Tracks that have, (laughs) we have nostalgia goggles for, and we fully admit that. And we want to talk a little bit about these tracks. These are tracks that that when we listen to them, they immediately make Will and myself, uh, sometimes separately, we have some examples that I brought in, some examples Will brought in, they immediately make us really happy, and we absolutely adore. But we will admit that if we did not have those experiences, those nostalgia goggles, we would probably not feel the same way about these. So let's talk about the first one. This is a track I brought in. This is from NBA Jam for the Sega Genesis. Now, I played this game almost every day as a kid with Marty. Have so many fun memories of this. So when I listen to this track, Team Select, it makes me smile. I adore it. But I will admit that if I didn't have that experience, and I think that's partly what's happening with Will when he listens to this, he doesn't really have that experience playing NBA Jam as much. He might have a different reaction. Let's take a listen to Team Select, composed by John Hay. You guys are listening to Team Select from NBA Jam, and yeah, it's it's. There's so many different ways that we experience nostalgia, but this first facet, the number one uh, area that we're talking about today, there's no objectivity, and it's just absolutely biased. Like I can't listen to this in and really be a be an unbiased source because for me. So much of what I love is just thinking about those times and, and this just when I hear this track it makes me happy and I see the you know those really compressed images from the nineties basketball teams and I just I just experience that in my head and so I think this is a really killer, groovy, um, fun track, but but yeah, if I didn't have those experiences 
I don't think I would ever be playing it on the podcast. Well, sure. What, what are your thoughts? Maybe your objective thoughts on this? Well, first of all, I want to say I don't think this is a bad piece of music. To me, it's just it's not very notable. There's nothing um, on musical merits that make it stand out amongst a sea of mm. other kind of average sounding Genesis scores. I like that it's groovy. I like that it's kind of funky. The thing though that I will say in praise of it is because, and this is an area where a lot of times people will ridicule something because they say, oh, you only have nostalgia for it or it's right. just playing on those emotions. Clearly the designers of NBA Jam, and I think that extends to the composer as well, they immersed you in a world if the game was yeah. really terrible if the music was really bad you wouldn't have enjoyed it even as a kid it clearly was succeeding to the level of immersing you in creating an enjoyable experience that you would want to play time and time again so i actually think it's the greatest honor for an artist to create something that becomes nostalgic for future generations now that being said maybe this isn't the greatest piece of music ever <laughs> but it still has merit if well, because yeah, of its nostalgia there's no doubt that these composers in, in the early 90s here, they were not aware of the power that they were wielding with this stuff. They were thinking about the kids that would experience this. And, oh, we're going to make fun music for your kids. But they weren't thinking that these kids are going to grow up and have a lot of passion with this stuff. So, yeah, I think they, they weren't aware of the power that, that they were wielding. Um, I'm excited to move on to another um, selection of mine. I brought in, I think, two more uh, from this facet of, you know, pure nostalgia goggles here. Um, this is another Genesis track, and I don't think Will's ever heard this. I don't think you have experience with this game will um another game that me and marty played a lot of um in the early days of having our genesis was pac-man 2 the new adventures and i don't think we ever owned it but we rented it at least two or three times um and you know had a good so time funny with it. carl i knew you were gonna play something from this game really because this is a game that i played sort of the um comparable version on the super nintendo oh no as a kid. <laughs> and i i hated it i i really think this kind of this pac-man adventure thing I, it completely baffled me i was like why would they make yeah like an adventure game for pac-man it had nothing and i to remember do with not yeah liking it but i always remember when i would explain that to you guys you'd be like oh no that yeah. game's the best well we played the genesis version and we loved it and, and this is a great example this track is called home sweet home it's very jazzy and fun it kind of reminds me of old school cartoon music and it's i think objectively speaking you'll probably think yeah it's a fine track it's kind of nice um but for me it makes me so happy because it really reminds me of this specific time in my life let's take a listen to home sweet home composed by fuken tajima <laughs> guys listening to <laughs> home sweet home from pac-man 2 the new adventures sega genesis version composed by fuken tajima here and uh this is a track that plays at your home in the game it's one of the early pieces of music uh this game so i have two memories when i think about really good uh games that we rented and, and played a lot of for some reason i think of this game 
and I think of Lion King, and I also think of Beavis and Butthead. Those were games that we, re- all three of those games, I think we rented multiple times and, and just had a lot of fun with. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I just, this is absolutely nostalgic music here. Um, this is a little bit less powerful than the NBA Jam. Like, I do actually just enjoy listening to the NBA Jam music. I, every once in a while, I just listen to it. Whereas this, I, I never listen to this um, really outside of the game experience, but it does make me feel good listening to it. Yeah, this is a piece that, I mean, I like that it's kind of that plucky, swung, uh, old-timey novelty music sound. Uh, I just don't really think there are many features of it that are that strong. The melody's hmm. all right. Yeah. The harmony is in the ballpark, I think, of the pastiche that they're going for. But there are some awkward moments to me uh, that, honestly, like, it, just as someone who hasn't played it, like, if I were discovering this track for the first time, say, for, like, a show and tell or for something, you know, I would just skip right past it. Um, but it's interesting That's to interesting. think about it as being something that, you know, you would have fondness for. And, yeah. you know, me, myself, you know, there there are tracks on today's playlist that uh, I definitely think I would be guilty of the same thing, where mm-hmm. if I actually were objective and I didn't have the associations that I do with it, I it, it probably wouldn't really move me very much. Right. But it's the kind of thing where you don't even hear it as a piece of music. It's just like such an immediate. It's almost like part a sound of effect. Childhood. Yeah. It's yeah. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. And and actually, we should also mention that the five different facets that we're exploring today, there's some crossover between the two for sure. Like there's probably tracks that would fit in at least two different um, categories today. But okay, let's move on to uh, one more track of mine uh, that I have absolute nostalgia goggles for. And and this is almost the most extreme case because (laughs) I don't think Will uh, likes this track that much. I think there's a lot of people that might think this is just kind of dumb and cheesy. Um, But I I think it's... (laughs) (laughs) really cool this is bgm theme 2 from chips challenge which was a classic windows game that you played um with the microsoft there's like a microsoft games pack for like windows 95 classic game i played this for hours this is unknown composer let's take a listen to this from chips challenge So I think this is a pretty funky track. Uh, I I really I really like it. Um, this you know sound set here, this general MIDI sound set is pretty cruddy for sure. But uh, it's similar to to what I grew up hearing. Again, this is an unknown composer. This is the BGM two from Chips Challenge. Um, it just has this kind of fun, bluesy, swanky energy to it. I, one of the things that I, I remember liking as a kid was how much of a fast flurry the bass was. This is a really fast bass line. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoy this. This this is another one that just immediately, I just see the 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 tiles and the keys and the character of Chip. I, just, I see all of it immediately in my head. Will, what do you think of this track? Well, I probably wouldn't call it bad, but it definitely would be a contender for a mediocre music episode in oh, my wow. opinion i don't think uh, we'd ever do that episode but <laughs> yeah that would just be incredibly boring just uh let's an not episode do that. where we play music that isn't comically bad and right. isn't good <laughs> yeah let's not do that uh that, yeah. yeah this is sort of mediocre to me i mean the, the the sound and the implementation i really think is 
poor to awful. Uh, <laughs> just the sound of it, it just kind of assaults your ears. It's pretty, yeah. All I the mean, timbres what's are funny gross. Is, the composition is decent. You know, I, but, in the context of this podcast, like playing a track in my iTunes playlist here, oh, you know, recording this with you, I'm a little bit nervous. Like some of these things, like for the first time, I'm almost hearing the seams of, of this track. And I have to admit, it's it's total nostalgia goggles. Yeah. If I didn't have that experience, I would probably think this is a little bit cruddy. So, all right, we're going to move on to Will. Will brought in two tracks that cover this first um, facet that we're talking about. Will, what was the first thing you brought in? The first thing that I brought in was Mushroom Hill Zone from Sonic and Knuckles. Now, Perfect. I, before some of you start, you know, like screaming from your <laughs> iPods or just start yelling, you know, how could I dare insult a Sonic track? Look, nobody, no two people are bigger fans of the Genesis Sonic games yeah. than us Brueggemann brothers. But I have to admit that Sonic and Knuckles, to me, takes a noticeable dip in quality mm -hmm. in terms of the music. Now, there are tracks that I really like, yeah. Um, but Mushroom Hill Zone is one that it's just hard for me to be objective about. When I really examine it musically, there are a lot of things that are kind of annoying in the implementation. I don't think it's yeah. the greatest melody. It kind of, it's stoppy, starty, and sort of awkward, but it's a classic Sonic track it's so to me. Classic. Whenever I listen to it, it just, um, it completely brings me back. Yeah. And the track itself is nostalgic. It has this kind of melancholy feeling yeah. to it i guess um but it's one that you know i think whenever i listen to it by itself it's kind of like oh boy what's going on here well, let's check it out this is mushroom hill zone act one You guys are listening to Mushroom Hill Zone Act 1. This is uh, composed by Sega Sound Team from Sonic and Knuckles, and I know what you mean now. You know, with the, again, with this lens of this podcast and, and this topic today, I know what you mean. Imagine if this was the first stage of Sonic 3, and it's like experiencing this as a first stage. It is lacking musically. I mean, compare this to Angel Island, it's just not even in the same ballpark. I think, I will say though, if you experience this as like the seventh stage, I don't think it would offend us as much. I mean, it kind of is at the same territory as like a Sandopolis or something like that. It's just, yeah, you know. I, mean, I also don't like Sandopolis. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's like, what's the worst track in Sonic 2? Maybe like Hilltop Zone? That's still a great song, though, and I think has a really good melody and likable. Yeah. This, it just starts off right off the bat, kind of awkward, and it's very sparse. There's so much empty space in the arrangement, like it's unfinished. And yeah. it's just kind of dissonant in the timbres yeah, of the I mean, bass. The implementation is really wonky. Like, and also, I really think if we didn't grow up with it, it, we would think it was bad. But when I hear it, it just sounds classic. This is actually one of the cases where the panning and the, I guess, quote-unquote mixing that was possible on the Genesis, which was very limited, uh, really gets in the way here. Uh, you know, just having those really kind of 
sharp brass harmonies, hard panned. It's almost too, they're almost too present. And I don't know. Yeah. And the drum part is also really mind boggling. Like, totally. It's just a really odd beat. Um, yeah. There's just a lot of really quirky choices made with What's this track. What's funny about Mushroom Hill Zone, it's a, I would never examine this piece of music when I'm playing the game. You just accept it because it's right. sonic. And there, I will say there are things musically that do feel classic and do feel like part of the sonic idiom. Like right. as much as I think it's awkward, that bass line, there's something about that that is very sonic-y and the, the, some the nature of the yeah. B section. But in general, it's just kind of... Um, I don't know. It, it puts me in like a sour mood whenever huh. I get, whenever I'm playing this level, I just kind of feel a little depressed. Interesting. And I do think part of that is the music. It's just so, sort of underwhelming. And this is like the first point where Sonic started to have a decline. I feel like. I think you brought up something interesting in the beginning of the episode of the, the sad side of nostalgia. That was what I was forgetting for me. Actually, nostalgia feels like maybe like 70, 80% happy. And maybe for you, that's not always the case. Because, um, yeah, there is a melancholy aspect of this of this feeling that we're exploring today. And so maybe right. this is an example of a little bit of that sadness. So, to well, me, yeah, nostalgia is almost like, I think of it as like the theme from Up, where it's like, it's oh. sweet and innocent on the surface, but mm. it tugs at your heart and it makes yeah. you want to cry. That's nostalgia to, Interesting. to me if I were to like, you know put it in a candy that you could taste and th- and that's a good reminder i think it means something a little different for everybody well what's the last track that you brought in so this is the last one we're going to be exploring today in this first facet i'm excited to play this on the podcast this is something that we probably never would have discussed but one game carl that you and i used to play all the time was mario kart double dash oh and, yeah uh the multiplayer mode was really fun and we would race a lot and you know that game had this ability where two people could race kind of cooperatively one person controlling the items and Mm -hmm. one person racing i thought that was a great idea uh the mode that carl and i tended to play the most often though battle was the battle mode either balloon battle or the bomb blast oh my gosh i love that this very frantic music and honestly when you listen to it you definitely hear this sowing the seeds of everything i hate about (laughs) what ended up happening with mario kart music but i have those goggles on man yeah. you know when i listen to this i just remember all the fun well, it is we important had. to wear your goggles when when you're you know riding carts so that's that's a safety <laughs> concern so i have a feeling take, this is a shinobu tanaka composition uh yeah I, I i really don't know there are certain tracks in this game as i was revisiting the soundtrack that you can definitely tell are her and she mm-hmm. has this interesting chord language and a certain type of like pad chord harmony that is so similar to super mario sunshine but this track just has a lot of notes and and is very quirky. <laughs> Let's take a listen to Balloon Battle from Double Dash. So I actually have never listened to this with headphones before. So this is a weird experience. I realized that I've only ever heard this track underneath the loud sound effects of the Bob-Oms blasting. So <laughs> listening to this with this clarity and precision, 
this is really weird harmonically. Like, I don't really understand some of the moments in this. Right. Uh, it works well as BGM for a battle, I will say. Uh, but, yeah, um, not so sure about this on its own. Yeah, I know. It's so bizarre. The melody is... Is again, I'm very nostalgic for it, so I kind of like it. But I think if I if I hadn't heard it a billion times, it, I would think it was kind of awkward and annoying. And right. I still kind of think it's a little bit annoying. <laughs> it is I a just little have, bit annoying. I have yeah. fondness for it. Dun, 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 also, the dun, presentation. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> The, the the presentation of it where everything is kind of detuned the brass it just sounds like really crappy general midi at least the there's not a lot of that whistle, whistle in the, there's not a lot of that in this track i i don't mind the whistle i i have again nostalgia for that sound um but <laughs> yeah i thought this was a a perfect example because there are tracks in mario kart double dash that i actually think are quite good right um maybe my nostalgia goggles are like on too tight and i can't even tell okay, but this so, is one that i still really like i i yeah. enjoy this it makes me smile but i accept that it's not the best track okay in the world. so so that concludes our first segment we've accepted um all those tracks we, we're we'll, we're gonna admit that we have nostalgia goggles and we can't objectively speak to the quality of the music we're gonna now move on to our second facet today these are tracks that we have equal to more nostalgia goggles than what we just played however we would stand by we would defend these pieces of music to the ends of the earth these are tracks that we absolutely adore for nostalgia reasons and also I just think a lot of these pieces of music kind of informed us as composers. So we are going to try to be objective. We, we think we're able to be slightly objective about these wonderful tracks. Let's move on to the first one. This is from Super Mario World. When I think of the topic of nostalgia for video game music, this is actually one of the first things that comes to mind. Let's take a listen to the Overworld from Super Mario World, composed by Koji Kondo. <laughs> So as soon as this started to play, <laughs> Will said an expletive, and he, he was like, wow, I, I can't believe we're actually playing this. It's always crazy to, you know, have any sort of playlist, uh, podcast playlist, and all of a sudden you play one of the most iconic melodies, like, of the last, like, 30 years. Uh, Overworld from Super Mario World, composed by Koji Kondo. Um, let's, let's try our best to speak objectively about what we think is effective about this as a piece of music. Obviously us, just like a lot of you listeners, when you hear this, it immediately conjures up Yoshi and all those wonderful colors and the gameplay and the memories. But let's try to, you know, <laughs> put a pin in that for now. And I'll start with Will. Will, what do you think is effective about this as a piece of music? Well, first of all, uh, we've talked at great lengths about how effective the melody is in the past and how, uh, Koji 
Koji Kondo just so excellently um, limits himself to using, you know, outlining of these triads, using chord tones and scalar passages. It's very yeah. simple and condensed. It, it really is, I would argue, a perfect melody, every single note. And I think the harmony and the arrangement is equally solid. Something that maybe we haven't focused on as much because, again, we take it for granted. Right. I really think Koji Kondo was using this as an opportunity to almost write a brand new theme for the character of Mario mm. and to kind of imbue the series with a sound identity in terms of what he's doing with the samples on the Super Nintendo. What I love hearing it, just kind of trying to be objective about it, that kind of the mandolin line now we might think of it as being more like something that would be played on a guitar, but it does sound like a mandolin, this timbre. I think that's trying to communicate a little bit of the fact that Mario is this Italian plumber. Right. The sound of the mandolin in this score i think is meant to make it sound just ever so slightly italian and that's something that again it's such a classic piece of music i just hear it as one solid entity but kind of thinking of it from the ground up well you bring up a good point that it also kind of represents the character of mario because at first i always think oh it's trying to represent the location of these overworld levels but yeah it does represent the plucky happy-go-lucky nature of mario as well now you know what i wonder if we've ever talked about this but why hasn't there been a really faithful arrangement of this with the exact real instruments right. that this has. A real steel drum player, a real tuba, a real mandolin. Like, take the exact instruments. It'd be it so would be fun. so much cooler than what most people do. Let's do that. <laughs> Dude, that's such a good point. Because what's interesting is like, this, this specific sound set of instruments is so much more interesting and unique yeah. than any time you ever hear it you covered know what? I, with like guitars. I'm going to do or, that. I think I'm going to take that project on. All I need is I need to find a steel drum player somewhere and, and, and record that. So, all right, let's move on. Let's move on to the world of from, from Mario to Sonic. This is from Sonic the Hedgehog for the Genesis. Another game that immediately comes to mind when we think about nostalgia. And we've played, you know, a track from uh, Sonic and Knuckles. But this is from the original, composed by Misato Nakamura. Let's take a listen to a track that this is one that could fit in multiple facets today, because I do think musically, some of the chords and the way that this melody is written has this sense, this kind of slight melancholy nostalgia sound based on the composition. But we're also going to be talking about how objectively this is a great track uh, apart from the nostalgia that we have for it. Let's take a listen to Starlight Zone.
Okay, so another great track that I'm excited to try to be a little bit objective about today. There's so much going on here. I'm not going to talk at all about my connection to this. We've talked about it before, so let's let's not talk about that. The bass line, it's incredibly minimal and efficient, and it keeps the groove going. The, the drum part is, is very, very zen. You know, there could have been so much more backbeat and fills and all this kind of stuff, but no, it's pretty much just this four on the floor, very subdued dance beat. Um, the melody, really evocative, interesting rhythms. That top note, uh, kind of, you could imagine almost like a singer like belting that note, almost like at the end of the night, kind of like this jazzy 80s ballad. Um, there's just so much going for this piece. Absolutely. Uh, talking about the melody a little bit, uh, the, those even rhythms, da, 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 is part of what makes it so catchy. Another thing right. that this melody does, which I love in a great tune, is recontextualizing a phrase by altering the pitch for the chord progression so we have yeah and then now we have that same scalar passage but altered to be in minor it's so tasty it's very beautiful you know something I love about this track is the a section melody is very clearly trying to be a vocalist you can hear someone singing that but the B section that's a brass line there's no and they dovetail into it yeah you know that that brass melody is almost like a counter melody. You can imagine mm-hmm. if the A section is a singer on the singer when she's hitting her last note, yeah. then, you know, the trumpets and saxes come in in unison on this kind of, you know, and then, and then there yeah. is this kind of passing around. Exactly. You know, it, it, it's just, it's really filled with atmosphere. It's a very tasteful and subtle arrangement, very kind of simplistic, but it really does the job and yep. it's, it's truly wondrous. And again, Carl, to me, I don't know about you, this is a piece of music that in and of itself, intrinsically, the emotions conjured through the melody and harmony are very nostalgic. Very and I think so. even at the time, there is this kind of pastiche quality where it's kind of looking back to, you know, old jazz standards and a, a really rich um, slightly melancholy harmonic language. Yeah, it's almost meta. It's nostalgia within nostalgia. It's, it's crazy. So we have two <laughs> more tracks. Nostalgiaception. Yeah, uh, it's stacked. We have two more tracks to talk about in this facet here, and we're going to stay in the FM synth. We're going to move from the Genesis to the Sound Blaster uh, era of PC games. We're going to go to The Secret of Monkey Island, which was the first LucasArts adventure game that either of the Marcado Bros ever played. Our, our cousin Bo, Bo Brueggemann, he actually, I remember the day he came over to our parents' house and installed this game on our uh, computer. And we had, really, we were never the same after, after experiencing this game. Let's take a listen to the Scum Bar Sound Blaster version composed by Michael Land.
I'm excited to talk about this. You guys are listening to The Scum Bar from The Secret of Monkey Island, and this is the ad, ad lib or sound blaster version. Now, what I think is really effective about this is that it perfectly captures that kind of pirate drunken jig quality, something that you would hear at an old bar yelling and fighting and drinking grog. I think it perfectly matches that kind of old folk melody quality. And, uh, you know, if we were to first hear this, and some people were, you know, actually I, I was replaying all these games and we just finished the second one last night uh, with my girlfriend. I'm showing her these games and I'm showing her the special edition version. So she's hearing these wonderful melodies for the first time with more fleshed out real instruments. And I think if we all heard that for the first time, I think we would be totally captivated and just thrust into this world. Absolutely. You know, in fact, it's funny. I always preferred the Sound Blaster versions, but <laughs> listening too. to it on its own, it really is kind of crappy. I mean, yeah. these timbres are not great. The balance isn't ideal. Well, this is interesting. We can talk about the, nost- the, the facet number one within a track that's in facet number two. Like, the implementation here, I will admit, it's nostalgic goggles we, we can't be objective that this is the best sounding version but the piece itself i think is objectively a great yeah, piece of music the arrangement is great that it's so funky it definitely yeah. it, it's um it's kind of capturing that sort of uh reggae backbeat that they go for in most of the soundtrack except it's right. it's not really swung and it's not accentuating that i love that this piece is in four though uh, I think it would be more of an obvious choice to do it in three or in six, eight. You know, mm-hmm. there's so many kind of jigs and music in that style. But I love this piece in the scum bar, really the first piece of music that you hear functionally within the game. That's true. The fact that it's not going for either reggae or a, a jig sound means that it's not a cliche. And I think it's amazing how just within the melody and chord progression, they make it feel like an old drinking song, like an old shanty. It's great. Uh, but it's not really evoking any cliches. I think that's one of the things that makes this piece uh, stand out so well in our minds and yeah. why it's so married to the experience of the game because it's the moment that you realize, oh, this actually is a world. It's not just giving you, you know, pirate cliches. Yeah. It's kind of more rich than that in this era music is one of the most important ways to make a world feel lived in make it feel a little bit real and raw you know and uh yeah michael land totally nailed it well we're going to return to the mario kart series and going from facet one to facet two here again talking about pieces that we still think are objectively great that we do happen to have nostalgia for. This is from Mario Kart 64, and that makes a lot of sense. I think we still really think highly of this score. This is Frappe Snowland, composed by Kenta Nagata. It's also used uh, for, it's used for two different stages in the game. It's the snow theme. It's one of the best melodies, I think, in the whole Mario Kart series. It's absolutely delightful. Let's take a listen to this from Mario Kart 64.
know, fun fact, um, I, I'm not sure if some of you listeners know this, but one of the things I do actually full time now for my job is I teach music lessons, uh, piano, drums, and guitar. And I've actually been working on this particular theme uh, with a couple of my piano students. Some of my beginner students where they, they are taking, we're doing it as a duet where they take the melody and I play the chords. And it's a really fun piece that's fairly easy to play, but it sounds really cool when, you know, when I add the chords with, with it. And then for some of my more advanced students, uh, I'm trying to do a fairly simple arrangement that has both. And so, yeah, video game music has actually been really useful material for me as a, as a teacher. So that's kind of fun. But yeah, well, let, let's talk a little bit about uh, this melody and kind of what era this is trying to go for. To me, there's like a little bit of kind of like a public domain kind of elevatory music sound. Yeah, especially in that B section, absolutely. Mm-hmm. You even get this one moment of kind of a luscious uh, tritone sub with yeah. uh, what the bass voice is doing there. Uh, I think it's actually sort of like an F minor chord over B flat that happens. Yeah. It's really nice. This piece overall is in C major and it uses this kind of tried and true Nintendo progression where you have <laughs> sort of a static C with um, the third and fifth moving up to F and A and then to G and B. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of what's happening in the right hand, it would be in what we call second inversion with uh, the G as the bottom note followed by the C and then the third, the E. And the E and G are both moving up while the C is in the same position. And what's nice about that is when we get to our third chord, it's basically this sort of C major seven chord with no third. Yeah. Yeah, And you have this half step dissonance between the B and the C. It's really effective voicing it kind of sounds a little bit like uh alan menken to me or just that kind of like 90s sound but the arrangement is really great the bass and that um chord voice they really lock in together knowing that this is a a snow theme i actually love how not cliche this is everything other than the percussion there's not much snow connotation or christmas time connotation but it fits super well Well, and even the percussion it's not doing a sleigh bell rhythm Mm -hmm. you know it's doing something much more kind of dancey and almost it's yeah. like tropical to the feeling. It's perfect for racing game music. And I think we've talked about this melody before. I love yeah. how it's sort of symmetrical and you have that that rhythm kind of keeps continuing and that that motive carries us into the B section where we get some of the more luscious chords. And and you know what? I can actually firsthand speak to this being an, a case of an objective good piece of music because a lot of my students that are pretty young that I'm playing this with, they have never played this game. And every single one of them adores this track they love playing it they think it's so fun and I think that's a testament right there it's just a great melody it's totally. a lot of fun to listen to a lot of fun to play so all right let's now move into number three uh, in our different facets of nostalgia okay we're now going to move into something that we're going to call cultural nostalgia okay we're going to play two tracks that hopefully will convey this idea these are pieces of music that are so beloved so you know integral to what video game music is as a culture that I think we all have have this shared feeling and this shared connotation that comes up when we listen to it. Let's take a listen to the first example. This is from Tetris for the Game Boy. We're going to play the classic Theme A. This was worked on by Hirokazu Hiptanaka. Let's take a listen.
So I would say uh, just behind the, <laughs> the track we're going to play next, and maybe Legend of Zelda and a couple others, this is definitely one of the most famous video game melodies. Um, and it, it can be used now to the point of comedy, where if you have any sort of, let's say you're playing it, you're, you know, you're making some sort of game and there's a puzzle in it, even if you just hearken to this theme a little bit, it's a nice wink that everybody is going to understand. So, so yeah, let's talk a little bit about what this means that we all share this this sense of nostalgia uh, for this track just based on how popular of a game Tetris is. Yeah, I think there's definitely that, and there's also a really interesting and fascinating history with Tetris in terms of how it was published and released, and it has to do with yeah. Atari and its sort of offshoot company Tengen, and how uh, there's actually a YouTube channel called The Video Game Historian, That's um, right. who very accurately uh, talks about the um, battle between Atari and Nintendo and kind of the, the legal mishaps and how Tengen actually started producing these kind of... Uh, almost bootleg cartridges that weren't endorsed by Nintendo, which is why most people, you know, play Tetris on the Game Boy and Mm -hmm. the NES version is kind of uh, more up in the air. But I I think there's all this interesting stuff surrounding Tetris because of that reason. And also there's this sort of hidden Easter egg in the music that it was an intentional thing by Hirokazu Tanaka, but for most kids at the time, they didn't realize they don't know the Russian folk history very well. Yeah, that it was a piece called Korobeniki, which was sort of a famous Russian folk tune. Um, But I think even if you don't know that, there are definitely aspects to it that have that Russian folk sound in terms of the harmony and sort of the general darkness of it, I guess you would say. Um, And so because of that, it it is nostalgic inherently and kind of looking back. And I think all of the kind of interesting history about Tetris and how certain versions uh, had like a limited release and then you couldn't get them. And even now to this day, they're kind of... Uh, hard to find and it's just a very interesting story that yeah i agree carl it sort of transcended into our pop culture yeah it definitely has and i'm excited to move on to really the definitive example of this and and i'm excited to to discuss this a little bit we're we are going to (laughs) play the most famous the most beloved piece of video game music now is this well can you remember is this the maybe the third or fourth time we've played this on the podcast we definitely played it in episode one um, We've we played, played it, it, I think, I believe four times okay. uh, before in the history of this show. All right. Well, considering that this is the 13th season of our show, I think it warrants to play it again. Let's take a listen to the overworld from Super Mario Brothers.
So clearly the strongest example of what we're talking about with cultural nostalgia. Now again, this is a crossover. This could easily fit into number two as far as an objectively great piece of music that you don't have to be nostalgic to know. And, and that's that's proven, uh, again, with all these other generations of people that might not have ever played the original Mario game, but yeah, they're playing Mario games now, and every single Mario game has some sort of nod to it. And so this that's another reason why this theme has lasted so long is because it's hearkened to in so many other video games and I do think you know the fact that it is as popular as it is uh, for so many years that's that's kind of proof right there but um, well you know do you think there's any place you could go to in the world where you would play this or hum this and you know <laughs> people wouldn't be able to, to know what it was I'm sure you could find someone who could who could recognize it. I mean, there are reports of, you know, uh, I, I think it was like Alec Guinness went to like Tahiti and they said Obi-Wan Kenobi. I mean, right. it's like there are certain things that are so ubiquitous, like the Simpsons or Star Wars or Harry Potter, right. Super Mario. You know, there, there are certain things it's that are there. just so ubiquitous. They're going to be around forever. But I think this theme to Super Mario Brothers is one of the most important things in video game history history. I mean, it's I think it was one of the sole elements of that game that really made it feel, I, it might be hard for us to relate now, but like you were playing a movie, that you were enacting in, in a story, that it wasn't simply a game in the way that like a board game worked, that it you was were interactive, playing out yeah. a story. And this piece of music tells a story. It's an enigma for so many reasons. It's so singular. I can't think of another piece of music that sounds anything like it, though there are <laughs> elements obviously that are borrowing from Latin music and as Marty so brilliantly explored kind of the uh, vaudeville origins of it right. but in terms of the way it's voiced and the melody I can't think of anything else that is remotely similar and that's partially well, it doesn't even sound like Koji Kondo it doesn't even sound like another Koji Kondo composition yeah. you know it, there's exactly. absolutely nothing else like it and I think this is a good example of you know this is right at the the time when Nintendo was kind of saving the video games industry when people yeah. at this time thought of oh, video games are just a, a fad they're a child toy that's that people aren't going to talk about years later but this is an example of music that is very colorful and it really kind of motivates you to explore this game and it kind of fills in the dots of the DNA of this where it's like if you just watch this game silently um, yeah it's really blocky and uh, you know, it's fun but there's a kind of a, a very limited color palette but when you listen to this music it fills in all the dots for you well and koji kanto talked in this interview that was recently translated actually from japanese this was a much older interview i believe it happened in 1990 or 91 okay and he actually talked about voicing the chords the way he did that he found that the timbres the square synths on the nes created a harsh sound when you had closed voicings mm. in root position you know the do mi so i, I even mm -hmm. think he called it that it just didn't sound good in that close register which is why he explored having these open voicings and what we get in in this piece you know you have uh, a root and then you maybe have like uh, the third and octave above that, and then maybe you have the fifth above that. You know, these very spaced out voices. That's really cool to hear that. 
Yeah, and it's something that's so effective, and it, it makes the piece so unique. That whole opening is basically you have three voices that are in strict parallel motion, and each one is very spaced out. To actually play it on the piano, you know, it, you kind of need to use the thumb and pinky of one hand in like right. your middle finger of the other, and just move your hand. Well, well in that's parallel. a really cool story to hear, like the origin of how he, why he came up with those voicings, and eventually he, you know, I think composers were able to figure out ways to do close voicings on the NES but what a cool origin of, of why that was you know chosen to do that so very cool I think we're ready to move on to our fourth example of nostalgia these are going to be pieces that for us personally for Will and myself represent no true nostalgia uh, because we did not grow up with these pieces of music these are all discovered after starting the podcast and I think these might be the most powerful arguments defending why video game music is valid there's something beyond just just, oh, you liked it because you, you played it as a kid. No, there's something more than that. So these are tracks that we've discovered um, that we absolutely adore and we think are objectively great. And I think uh, these tracks also transcend into the world of invoking some of the nostalgia that we have for the sound of video game music. A little bit, because, yes. Because these examples do sound like that classic well, And that's what's video tough is sound. I do think there's crossover. Um, yeah, we're going to get to that a little bit more. But yeah, let, let's talk about the first one. This is another holy crap moment. I can't believe we get to play this. But yep, we're playing it. It's Magical Voice Shower. This holds the, the really fantastic title of being, I think, the best track that Will and myself we've ever discovered on the podcast. It doesn't get any better than this. This is from Pop and Music 12. Let's take a listen to Magical Voice Shower. Okay, so again, it's going to be tough to, to not just talk about, oh, this is so amazing. But let's talk about why we think this is just really incredible piece of music. There's a lot going for it. Luckily, uh, this is by the Uchis, uh, Tomoyuki Uchida and Hiroyuki Uchida. And I think one of them was, was the singer here. And he was so lucky that he had such an endearing, just really charming voice that just sounds really good. Um, in the low registers and the high registers. And so there's something just charming about his voice. So that was very fortunate because really anyone else singing this arrangement, I can't imagine it would be more charming than this. Um, the harmonies are so lush and so solid. Uh, they're perfectly in tune. The fact that it's all one person's voice, even doing the percussion and everything, that's all wonderful. But if you actually take this exact melody, you know, and this this orchestration and everything, and you could play this on any instrument, and, and you would have a similar feeling. It's just 
a wonderfully composed track. To me, this is the height of music. I, I seriously mean it. I think this is my favorite piece of music of all time. And I think the reason why it is, is it's the perfect balance of simplicity and complexity. Simplicity for the listener in complexity for the composer, every single moment has a complex, beautifully constructed jazz harmony. Every single moment, every mm-hmm. single note that the melody moves to, the harmony is reharmonized in beautiful, perfect voice leading, and it evokes the emotions that we relate to, I think, old retro video game music, yet it's right. actually much more detailed than a lot of that stuff. It's such a flawless melody that's rhythmically catchy, the melodic tones are memorable, the movement of the bass and the chord progression overall, I mean... Every single second is so dense. And then on top of that, it is this feat that it's all produced with one person's voice. And even as far as that kind of acapella sound goes, this production is something that I'm just so floored by every time I listen to. I know. Every single thing, it's like, I know that they kind of artificially constructed that drum part, but there's nothing uncanny valley about it. Like it's so confident in the way that they compressed and limited everything. Like, I just think it's a perfect piece of music and I think it's my favorite piece of music ever. Like it's just, when you listen to it, the level of joy that I get is something that (laughs) music usually can't give me. Usually like life has to give you some amazing. Yeah. I mean, I, I will admit whether or not it's my favorite, or whatever but yeah it's it's one of those rare pieces of music that there's nothing else in the world like it and as soon as you discovered it you're like more more please please more and unfortunately that's kind of the way the world works some of the best things there's only one of and I you know I remember like showing this to my uh, my roommate you know that I used to live with a couple years ago and he had the exact same reaction where he would just be after I showed it to him you know months later just playing it around the house singing it playing it in the kitchen it's just one of those kinds of tracks that just oh man there's really nothing else like it so let's move on to another now this is i wanted to play an example of an old school track that did exist in the heyday of games that you know we grew up with playing but we never played it so we love this track not just for nostalgia reasons yeah it has an nes sound chip which some might argue might sound nostalgic but the music is so awesome here it's so rocking and we never heard it growing up this is shatterhand composed by Iku Mizutani in Hiroyuki Iwatsuki. Let's take a listen to the final area BGM. Here we go. That's a perfect NES rock track. It just, it's textbook. It covers all the bases, kind of the Mega Man 2 school of composition in some ways. Um, I don't know if a lot of these pieces of music would have existed if Mega Man 2 hadn't been, you know, as big of a hit as it was, because I do think that kind of laid the foundation of, of, of this approach here. Final area BGM from Shatterhand. Uh, this is a tough one because stylistically it reminds us of tracks that we do have nostalgia for. But we, you know, we don't really have objective nostalgia for this track. 
but I think we adore it I mean, almost as much as some of the music we do. So I think that's that's pretty powerful. It, it's really catchy to me as someone who does a lot of tracking and writes a lot of NES chip tunes. I'm so inspired by really what these composers were able to achieve on the NES hardware. Back then. Both of those lead instruments kind of have this deceptive quality of making you think it's one thing, but it's actually something more deep. You hear something like, dent, 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 da, 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 as though it's like that's one instrument that has delay on it. But it's actually uh, an instrument that they created with volume curves where there's right. a note attack and then it dips not down to zero, uh, but to a very soft volume um, right. and it makes it sound like you're hearing almost echo and delay without the need of using multiple channels for that sort of That's delay so effect. Brilliant, and yeah. both the melody and harmony are doing that and so you kind of get the sense that there's all of this like chord filigree happening that you can't yeah. really hear clearly but it just makes the piece really dense much more dense than the sound of just three voices in addition to that i really love how these composers utilize harmony and uh when i think of Mega Man 2 i think of a lot of like triadic harmony i think yeah. of things moving in thirds and sixths and it's rocking but it's really catchy and simple when i think of something like this i hear a lot more like power chord influence well, it kind of fluctuates back and, and forth fifths. between the two. Yeah, you know, there's yeah it's that thirds. great, right? It's that great NES sound where um, it's it's a mixture of more like triadic harmony, um, or I guess you'd say tertian harmony based around thirds. Well, and then also a nice back and forth of harmony, and then all of a sudden doubling of a rock riff, and then going back and back. It's just yeah, it's. It's really, really active. Okay, so now we're going to move on from that sound and see how is it how it has evolved over the years. We're going to play a track from Shovel Knight, which was one of the most exciting, um, I guess, soundtracks that was released in the course of us doing the podcast. This is taking, you know, it's interesting because Jake Kaufman, I think, has a lot of nostalgia for this era and, you know, chiptunes in general. And so he was definitely using that as a starting point, but he wanted to explore and go into a direction that was never possible before so that's what you're going to hear here let's take a listen to an interesting choice we're going to play something a little bit more uh classical this is waltz of the triple king one of will's i think favorite tracks of shovel knight let's take a listen Tough to beat that. This is Waltz of the Triple King from Shovel Knight. I can't imagine. Yeah, I, I don't think there's another, um, I guess, 8-bit track. This is obviously using VRC6 extension, but yeah, sure. 8-bit NES-style track that is this expressive and, like, romantic. It has these wonderful, you know, slowing and, you know, the tempo is changing. And it really feels like this, like, elegant classical waltz. 
And it's just crazy that not only was it achieved with this, you know, this hardware, but it just doesn't really sound like any other piece of classical music that came before it, too. You know, like there's right. plenty of classical music in the NES, but this is kind of stands on its own. Oh, absolutely. This is unlike anything on the NES. And it's not really like a classical waltz. I mean, the rhythms and the melody and how romantic and chromatic it is make us think yeah. it's classical music. But these are all jazz chords and That's true. jazz kind of modulations. One of my favorite thing that Jake does here is he never lets a phrase have sort of a perfect cadence where it resolves <laughs> back to one. Each phrase leads into the next thing. And melodically, you could feel a sense of complete and resolution, but right. he'll throw in some kind of chord substitution or, or something to kind of propel the harmony forward into yeah. the next section. And it's, again, just like we talked about with the pop and music example, it's such excellent uh, uh, voice leading and harmonization of those chords. Uh, I think it's so beautiful. The melody is great. I remember the first time I experienced this in the game, I cried and laughed, and it was just this amazing <laughs> mixture of just like being so in awe of what Jake Kaufman was doing, but so yeah. thankful that he was sort of sending up retro games in this way. And uh, this is a piece of music that, you know, even if it doesn't exactly sound like retro game music there's something so old-fashioned about it yeah. this type of waltz sounds like something that you might listen to when you're a child so it does have some of that nostalgia mixed in there and it has that melancholy beauty in that yeah. sort of chromatically descending chord progression moment well let's transition to what will's getting at and this is the last topic we're going to talk about today the fifth uh, facet. Now, this is music that has nostalgia that's inherent to the the track itself. Whether it's the composition, the types of chords and the melodies that are used give a feeling of melancholy and nostalgia, or the use of specific instruments, specific palettes, um, all coming together. So, this is a piece of these are pieces of music that have nostalgia built into them. Let's take a listen to. We're going to start off with Undertale, and as a, as an experience, uh, there's so much nostalgia. Nostalgia uh, that is tapped into by uh, Toby Fox, who's the wonderful designer and, comp and composer here. Let's take a listen to Fallen Down Reprise from Undertale.
You guys are listening to Fallen Down Reprise. And the starting point for this, as far as, you know, having that sense of nostalgia for me, is the fact that he's using Super Nintendo uh, style samples here. So, yeah, you hear that connotation and it brings you back to a time in your life. It brings you back to a certain type of experience uh, and a certain type of imagination. Uh, So it has that. But musically there's just this something with this chord progression and the melody especially in the later section that happens at about 45 seconds in um that's so emotional and it really tugs at your heartstring in a way that uh i I will say that musically there's an there's an emotion of nostalgia that's captured in in this piece of music yeah absolutely this chord progression is one that we've heard sort of time and time again in video game music sort of culminating in that major to minor four moment right that that to me that that chord moment in particular is very central to the feeling of nostalgia I would say it's something that I've always been so drawn to and it has that mix of emotions and it's the epitome of you know going from happy to sad I mean when harmony is explained to children there's actually this Mm -hmm. great video going around now of Jacob Collier this brilliant jazz pianist vocalist and arranger explaining harmony to children of different ages and often when people are describing harmony to young kids they describe major as happy and minor as sad and so that major four to minor four progression is almost like the epitome of nostalgia as i described it as being the meeting point of happiness and sadness and when i think about the most powerful example of that in video games it's it's the credits of mario 64 and that could have been a great example totally today as well um think about the nostalgia that that you know we totally could have put that in this number five uh you know category for as far as having something in the music that makes you feel nostalgic for the experience you just finished and i think koji kondo was was a genius at that he did that a lot of times you know yoshi's island end credits theme there you go it's another track that it gives you nostalgic feelings for what you just played uh it's pretty wild so let's move on to another track that has this part of it is built into the sounds here some retro sounds, but there's something about, uh, you know, the theme itself. It reminds us of, of the heyday of video game music, and there's just something about this here um, that I think the nostalgia is built in. Let's take a listen to the title theme of Cave Story, and this is composed by, I think, another designer of the game, as well as composer Daisuke Amaya. So for me, uh, the part that really starts to get nostalgic is uh, at about like maybe 25 seconds or so when it has that a little bit more kind of show tuney uh, moment of the melody and then it's harmonized and it's chromatic and it's 
Oh gosh, yeah, it's ju- it's just awesome. Um, I think for me, when I listen to this, I-, I do have so many feelings of nostalgia, which is weird because this is a fairly modern game that came out. I think um, I'm not sure if this came out after we started the podcast, but it definitely was something I was not familiar with until after right. starting the podcast. And so for me, uh, I do think that there's something built into this track that has uh, nostalgia in it, and part of it. It could be the actual sounds, you know, going for this kind of vague chip sound palette. I think that's true. To me, though, that chord progression at the end where it's the descending bass line. Exactly. That's the part I'm talking about. Yeah. And then it gets to that flat six chord, which feels, ooh, that's that's total mm-hmm. video gamey sound there. You know, it's that borrowed chord. It brings us into more of the modern era, modern meeting, you know, late 20th century um, and then resolving down to the five. I mean, that's something that we hear in a lot of video game credits music. Right. It reminds me of Sonic. It reminds me of Koji Kondo. Um, you know, this composer, Daisuke Amaya, is is really tapping into that harmonic language. And it might not even have been necessarily a conscious decision. I mean, I think the Game Cave story was something that might have been nostalgically produced that was... Uh, designed with love and reverence to other existing video games and so i think this music kind of um fits in that pocket i guess all right so i'm really excited to 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 play this uh this i think is for me the most powerful example of a piece of music that has the emotion of nostalgia in the composition the chords and the melody and maybe slightly the type of genre that it's evoking make me incredibly nostalgic now add that with the fact that (laughs) this is going to be using the sound blaster audio which i grew up playing forget about it i can't think of a more nostalgic track this is from sam and max hit the road and this is trixie's trailer now trixie is a giraffe I don't. I think she might be like a giraffe-necked, like human. I believe um, that was at the carnival. Yeah, she's that the was... giraffe-necked woman from yep. Scranton, I believe. So, so yeah, she was she was captured. So one of the main plot of the games that you have to try to figure out what happened to her. So when you visit her trailer, she's not there anymore, but you see all of her belongings. And this track plays, and it's kind of this like '60s slight doo-wop, almost like the end of the summer, and you're looking back, uh, you know, and you're just thinking about all the good times. Um, it, it's really, really nostalgic. Um, I think it's it's just a great piece of music. Uh, let's take a listen to Trixie's trailer from Sam and Max. <laughs> Okay, so I mean, this—it's crazy how this makes me actually quite emotional. I, I think this is amazing, but 
the starting point for this, you have kind of that doo-wop, Earth Angel-style chord progression. I think this is like a 1, minor 6, a 4, and a 5. So it's a progression we hear a lot. And immediately when you play that progression, there's a sense of nostalgia there. There's a happy and sad mixed together, you know, perfectly conveyed with that. There's there's just kind of a lot of jazzy solos that, uh, you know, these <laughs> the dream team here is taking. So it's kind of this 60s kind of slow dance, something that you'd hear at like up the prom, like in the 60s. Um, and so, yeah, there's just a lot of nostalgia and also a sense of humor with kind of how much they're milking this schmaltzy thing here. But right. um, yeah, I, I just, I adore this. Yeah. Again, interesting though, this is something that I think could fit into multiple categories because listening mm. to it in the context of today, I do think this is a good piece of music, but I think if we hadn't grown up with it or didn't know its context in the game and mm. we're hearing the Sound Blaster version, we might not be all that crazy about it. Really? I, I do That's think part of it is the way it works in the game and seeing that room and getting yeah, it in context true. that you know compared with the rest of the music that it is almost a point of comedy you know so you think this could potentially fit into number one uh as well yeah that's that's possible all i know is that if when you experience this game i i can't imagine you you know don't have some sort of reaction uh, to this because when I first, I'll never forget when I first went and you get the crowbar and you, you know, you go into Trixie's trailer and I always thought it was just kind of something, this kind of slight sadness. Um, uh, and yeah, nostalgia is the perfect word for what I think I felt. You know, Carl, I remember you saying that even as a kid, whenever we get into Trixie's trailer, mm. that like there was something emotional about that music that yeah. spoke to you. It always really, really did. For me, one of the most powerful moments of a musical um, element of nostalgia in video games. I don't know what it is, but there, there you go. All right, last track we're going to discuss today, um, still in this fifth uh, and final category. This is from Pushmo World, and this is so good because uh, it's a great example. There's some old-school 8-bit chip sounds in here, so so yeah, that's a, a thing that Nintendo seems to be doing a lot lately where if they want to convey that sense of nostalgia, and Nintendo is a company where nostalgia is probably the most important uh, to them you know, as opposed to any other company. They get so much... Um, mileage out of it and it's it's a really important commodity for them so this is going to incorporate some of those sounds but also musically there's something about this that i think that hits the nail on the head let's take listen to a puzzling afternoon from pushmo world Guys, I had a delightful time exploring this topic and trying to frame this music uh, in a different lens. I think one of the things we try to do with this podcast, and hopefully we were able to do today, is in some ways kind of defend video game music as being valid as an art form beyond just this silly little thing that we grew up with or this thing that we just, we like it because we're nostalgic. So I think there were examples of that today, and we hopefully were able to admit that. But I think there were plenty of other examples that transcend that. And I think almost anyone that listens to 
something like magical voice shower, I think can have some sort of reaction that's, you know, innate to the piece of music itself. So this is a treat. Absolutely. We once again have to thank our good buddy Carlos for being the inception of this idea of talking about nostalgia on the podcast, because it is something that's so central to the discussion of video games and the preservation of game music. Yeah. I I also want to thank our our avid listener and friend Jackson, um, because we were sort of getting to talking uh, at MAGFest, and one of the things that he and I talked about was nostalgia and how actually that term and kind of the ubiquity of how people describe old games as nostalgic Mm -hmm. actually can sometimes do a disservice to the music and lead to kind of the unexamining of elements that are actually really effective. People might dismiss, you know, music from Zelda or music from Super Mario Brothers as being simply nostalgic, as though it could have been replaced with anything else Mm. and you'd be equally as fond of... Yeah, uh, it's possible for something to be nostalgic and also just objectively good as it, for other reasons as a piece of music. And so I that's do think most things that we are nostalgic for tend to be of a certain level of quality, which yeah. is why we liked them in the first place. Well, yeah, we also should mention that, uh, speaking of Carlos, we recorded um, a few weeks back uh, a Favorites with Friends episode that's going to be not next week, but the week after. So look forward to that. Carlos is finally coming on officially on the podcast. But next week, uh, speaking of nostalgia, we're going to have another slightly nostalgic episode. It's going to be a greatest hits episode of all the best stuff we played for the first time in 2017. So our greatest hits 2017 episode will be next week. That's going to be, those episodes are always so much fun, packed with amazing music. So, all right, guys, we're going to play you out with uh, Monkey Island 2 composition. This is Captain Dread. Um, and when I think of this track, I think of him <laughs> trying to go to Booty Island and Fat Island and it has that red line from Indiana Jones, but he has no idea where he's going, so the ship is just going in circles. And and so so that's what I you think. You know, of. some of our Uber drivers seem to be taking that kind of <laughs> navigational advice uh, this past week at Magfest. Very Captain Dread esque. All right, this is composed by Michael Land. Thanks so much, everybody. Thanks to all of our patrons. Uh, thanks to everyone for subscribing and leaving reviews on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube as well. We have a video version of our episode three hundred. Uh, I think that just about does it. We also do have all of our Mercado Band videos on our YouTube channel. And yes. if you follow our Facebook page, um, we posted a couple excerpts from our live show at MAGFest, which was just so delightful. You can yeah, also find all of our original music, soundtracks that we've done, and tribute albums on our website, supermarcadobros.com. All right. Thanks so much, everybody. My name is Carl Brueggemann. And I'm Will Brueggemann. Have a great week, everyone. Peace out. Thank you.